This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Nehemiah. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7. As you make your way to the seventh chapter of Nehemiah, I want to take a moment to remind you that Nehemiah was the man that the Lord raised up in order to lead the nation uh, of Israel into this time of political revival. Well, it's true that this began with the reconstruction of the defensive wall that surrounded Israel, uh, this uh, the completion of this construction project, it actually enabled the people of God to shift their focus from all the attacks of the enemy back to the calling of their covenant. When the defensive wall was down, uh, they had to concern themselves with the attacks of the enemy. But once it was completed, they got to refocus their attention on serving the Lord. So, so yeah, think about that for a moment. You know, uh, the, the Israelites were struggling to serve the Lord there at the temple. And the reason why is because the enemy was constantly coming in and mocking them and, and ridiculing them and attacking them. And, and then Nehemiah comes along and helps the people to rebuild this wall surrounding Jerusalem. And uh, this not only provided the people of God with, with a little peace of mind, uh, but it also enabled them to spend more time discovering and accomplishing the ministry uh, that the Lord had given to each of them. It's in similar fashion that the Lord has a plan to provide us with the spiritual protection that we need so that we can discover and accomplish our calling in Christ. And while I realize that there are many uh, in the church today who are constantly looking under every rock for demons that are ready to attack, uh, I'd like to let you know that we, we don't need to do that. We can focus on the Lord. He's our protective wall. He's our strong tower. The righteous run to him and are safe. Uh, and, and therefore, we can just focus on what does the Lord want us to do and how do we go about doing that. And with this as the goal, it's my hope that, uh, that, that the time we spend here in this chapter tonight will help us to embrace and accomplish our Christian calling, all the while recognizing that the defensive wall of our Savior uh, cannot be penetrated by the enemy. Well, with that, uh, let's continue to make our way through Nehemiah's account. So if you would look with me here at Nehemiah chapter 7, we'll begin our study there at verse 1. Here we learn that, that it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards uh, from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Nehemiah. He, he's recounting the day when the wall was finally finished and the gates of the city were finally put in place. It was at this point in time when the people were appointed to various positions, which uh, according to uh, this chapter includes the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. And so I want to take some moment to consider the gatekeepers who are being posted now at the 10 gates uh, that surrounded Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem, the, the, the defensive wall had 10 gates. 
And we aren't told how many men were appointed to this position of gatekeeper or guard. Uh, But what we can say for certain is that those who were appointed to this position of gatekeeper, they were men who were able to guard the gates against the attacks of Israel's enemies. And so these, these men were posted at their positions to guard the gates. And I imagine that there were probably three or four shifts and, and several men, uh, men at, at, at each uh, position. And we should also notice that Nehemiah here appoints two leaders who were then charged with the oversight of the gatekeepers. Notice again there in verse 2, uh, there again, Nehemiah writes, I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Now, I should point out here that the word charge, it says, I gave the charge of Jerusalem. Uh, That word charge was translated from a Hebrew word, which could also be rendered appoint, or he appointed Jerusalem to his brother Hanani. Uh, What this means is that Nehemiah appointed Hanani and Hananiah to become commanders over the gatekeepers. And and in order to understand why he chose these two men to to take on this leadership position, I want to take a moment to consider their own commitments to to the Lord. And and I I want to remind you that we first met Hanani back in chapter 1. That's when we learned about the day when Hanani arrived in Shushan. That's when Nehemiah was still serving King Artaxerxes. And I'll remind you that Hanani had traveled at least 800 miles uh, to Shushan just to, uh, just to go meet with King Artaxerxes uh, regarding the, uh, the issues with their enemies there in the land of promise. And as we consider the way that he risked his own life in order to secure the borders of Jerusalem, well, there's no doubt that Hanani, Hanani here was a faithful man who could be trusted with this task of overseeing the gatekeepers there uh, in Jerusalem. Then there was Hanani, who was already the leader of the temple fortress, or what's called here the citadel. So he's already a man of leadership. And according to Nehemiah, Hanani was a faithful man who feared God more than most. That being the case, this was also a man who could be trusted with this leadership position. And and in light of their examples, listen, we can see that those who desire positions of leadership must sh- they, they, they must first show themselves to be faithful with the opportunities that are available. You know, uh, there are people who don't want a leadership position at all, and so they do their best to, to hide from any opportunity. Meanwhile, uh, there are those who are also so geared up for a leadership position that they're ready to jump several steps over, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, opportunities that are before them because they're, they're targeting the, the big job. You know, they, they want the big position. And yet they haven't shown themselves faithful with the little things yet. And so with that, I just encourage you that if, if you desire leadership within the church, be faithful with the little things that God gives you to do today. Because if you're not faithful with those little things, then you, know, you, you, you aren't going to be faithful with something that is bigger. Uh, so with that, uh, let's turn our attention now back to our text today. Because here we find Nehemiah presenting these two guys with specific instructions regarding the oversight of this security detail. Notice with me again there in verse 3. Here Nehemiah declares, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. So, so they weren't supposed to open up the gates until the sun was hot. And, and let me just clue you into to, uh, you know, just a scientific fact here. The sun's always hot. So... <laughs> 
But clearly he, he's talking about how the, the sun being hot in the sky, you know, in, in the early morning it's not so hot, but as soon as the sun begins to rise, you know, uh, the, well, it starts getting hotter here on the earth. And, and so, you know, in the heat of the day is when these gates were supposed to be opened up for, you know, for the public to come in and out of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah here is helping Hanani and Hananiah to understand that they actually needed to, to appoint guards who were able to accomplish this task of guarding the gates. These were the weak points in this defensive wall, the gates. And so all 10 gates needed to be guarded. And so, so Nehemiah is saying to these guys, hey, go find guys to guard the gates. Appoint them to this position. That word appoint, which is found there in the middle of verse 3, well, it's translated from a Hebrew word, which means to ordain, to establish, and cause to stand up and stand firm. That's right. He uh, was calling Hanani and Hananiah to find men who were ready to be appointed or to stand up and stand firm there at those gates. And, and with this as the goal, it was their responsibility to choose men who were able to accomplish this task. They were supposed to appoint men who were able to accomplish this security detail. Not only that, but Nehemiah also encourages them to appoint the, the residents of Jerusalem. And in this way, the guards would maintain a security mindset, whether they were at their post or at their homes. Yeah, he wants them to stay on guard at the post, but then he also wants them to have a security mindset when they're at their own homes. And, and simply put, Nehemiah was encouraging Hanani and Hananiah to, to form this well-regulated militia of men who were always ready to engage the enemy, whether they were at work or whether they were at home. Now, as we consider the way that Nehemiah spent this time securing the city walls of Jerusalem with raising up gatekeepers and guards and this hierarchy of leadership, we, we should also notice here that he also appoints worship leaders and Levites for the ongoing religious services. Notice again there, we'll back up and begin uh, at verse 1 again. Here again, Nehemiah declares, Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers... The singers and the Levites had been appointed. From this we can see that Nehemiah was a political leader who was not only concerned about the security of Jerusalem, he was not only appointing gatekeepers to guard the ten gates, but he was also a spiritually minded leader who simply wanted to make sure that the people of God were being protected as they presented their sacrifices to the Lord there at the temple. So he appoints gatekeepers to, to what end? Just so that they can have a, a, a well-regulated militia? No, no. The purpose was to guard the gates, to protect the people as the people went and worshipped the Lord and offered their sacrifices there at the temple. So it was a security for the sake of serving the Lord. And as we consider the way that the, the people were appointed to these positions, well, it's important for us to realize that God actually had a calling for each of the people there in Israel. He had a calling for each person so that they might fulfill their own appointment. God has a calling. He has an appointment for those who trust in him. Uh, and that's not only true of the people there in Israel, uh, but it's also true uh, of Christians here in the church age. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's here where he declares, for as the body is one, and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. 
For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. Christian, listen, we're we're one body. You know, the universal church is one body, but then we can boil this down to to each individual uh, local church, and we can say that, that this church right here, Calvary South Austin, this is one body. And yet, this is one body which is made up of many members. There are many members that make up this one body. And in order for this body to function properly, every member must fulfill its function according to our calling in Christ. You know, if, if, if there's a part of your body that's paralyzed, that's a bummer. That, if there's a part of your body that's not functioning properly, it's a disappointment and it's a hindrance. Well, the same is true for the church. If there are paralyzed members within the church who aren't doing what the Lord is calling them to do, then it's a, it's a hindrance for the church. And with that, we should take a moment to ask, is the Lord calling us to be gatekeepers? Is he calling us to serve as guards? Is he calling us to serve you know, on the security team here? Is he, is he calling us to be on the worship team or the sound team? Is he calling us to serve in the media team? Is he, is he calling us to serve in the children's ministry or on the maintenance crew? And the list could go on and on with all the opportunities. But all the members ought to be doing their part to whatever God's appointment is for us. We ought to be doing that so that we become a functioning member of the body. Whatever the calling, it's crucial for every Christian to step up and serve so that we can help our fellowship of faith to become a fully functioning body with no paralyzed members. You might be wondering, well, what's my calling? What's the appointment that God has for me? And if this is a question that you have, well, I encourage you to consider the approach that Nehemiah employs here in our text tonight. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 7. If you would look with me there, we'll pick up at verse 4. Here we learn that the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Now here in these verses, we find Nehemiah, he's encouraging the people of Israel now to update their registry, uh, which at that point in time, Uh, was actually missing about 90 years' worth of data. They hadn't updated their registry uh, within about 90 years, and and I can only imagine how how many people had died and how many people had been born within that time. Nehemiah here is asking them to spend some time connecting the dots between the families who had originally returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel, 
and, and the people who were present there at the time when the wall was completed. And, and in this way, Nehemiah was helping them to, dis, to discover their roles and their responsibilities within the land of promise. Now, to explain what I mean by this, uh, let's continue making our way through Nehemiah chapter 7 here. I want to pick up our study beginning at verse 7. Here we learn that those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, uh, Nahamiah, Nana, Mordecai, uh, Bilshan, <laughs> Mesphereth, uh, Bigvi, Nehum, and Bana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. Now there's 12 names here, and it's possible that each name represents one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but we can't say for certain. But the list goes on in verse 8. The sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 652. The sons of Path Moab, of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Bibai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Adon, 655. The sons of Atter and of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashem, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Hereth, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netopha, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Azmaveth, 42. The men of Kirjath Jerem, Kephirah, and Biroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 122. Twenty-three. The men uh, of the other Nebo, you know, not that one Nebo, but the other one, uh, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. The sons of Sina, 3,930. Now this is just some of the most exciting writing in the entire Bible. Names and numbers, these, these are my favorites. But Nehemiah here is actually recounting the registry which was originally recorded in Ezra chapter 2. So if you were here for the study through Ezra chapter 2, you've been through this list twice now. That's incredible. Now if you're looking for more information about this registry and you're thinking, man, I really need to know more about these names and numbers, then you can go uh, and, and listen to my study from Ezra chapter 2. But just for the sake of our study tonight, I just want to focus your attention on, on the fact that the land of Israel included, uh, you know, all these people, you know, the, there, there were all these people living in all these different regions. And, and it's important to understand that, that within these communities, you, you, you find farmers and, and fishermen. So, so there's some communities that are focused on farming. Some, you know, live near the Sea of Galilee. They're focusing on fishing. You know, uh, every family would then, uh, you know, do their share. They, there, there were families that were raising herds, like sheep and goats, and, and others were making textiles for clothing. Uh, and every family would then pass on their specific trade 
from father to son. And so if your father was a farmer, then, then you would be a farmer. If your father was a fisherman, then you would be a fisherman. If your father was a fighting man, then you'd probably be a fighting man, and so on and so forth. And as Nehemiah takes this time to connect these people with their genealogies, he's also helping them to discover what it is they're supposed to be doing there in the land of Israel. Nehemiah encouraged them to update their register, by, and, and in this way he was helping them to identify and embrace their specific function there in the community of Jerusalem. We should also notice that Nehemiah was also helping to identify the priests, the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, if you would look with me again here, beginning at verse 39, here we read the priests, the sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua of Cadmiel and of the sons of Hodavah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Adder, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. Now here in these verses we find Nehemiah. He's actually reminding the people about the original registry here, which included the total number of priests, Levites, singers, and gatekeepers who returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And in this way, Nehemiah was also helping these people uh, 90 years later uh, to, to identify those who had been appointed to these positions. And so once again, he's trying to help the Israelites find out what their appointment is and what their calling is uh, there within the community of Israel. We should also notice that Nehemiah also includes the original list of the Nethanim who were called to serve there at the temple. If you would look with me again there at Nehemiah chapter 7, we'll begin reading at verse 46. Here we read the Nethanim, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabath, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Paddan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Salmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Reaiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nikoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasia, the sons of Besai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephesheshem, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Basleth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatipha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Porchereth of Zabim, and the sons of Ammon. All the Nethanim and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Now, if you're considering having another child, and you're looking for a baby name list, you might consider this. But Nehemiah here is presenting the, uh, the people with this original list of the Nethanim 
who had returned to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. And just to be clear, the Nethanim were the servants who were tasked with the responsibility of helping the Levites to accomplish their service there at the temple. And uh, these were the temple servants who were appointed to accomplish, you know, daily tasks and routines like cutting wood for burnt offerings and, you know, carrying water for the temple cleansings and these sorts of things. They were the assistants to the Levites. And with all this in mind, we can see then uh, how, again, Nehemiah was helping the people of God to discover their calling by encouraging them to connect their genealogies uh, to those who had returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And in this way, he was also helping every Israelite to become active members of the body there in Jerusalem. He was helping each person to find what their calling is, what their appointment was, so that they could be active members of the community. At the same time, he was also reminding them about the way that Ezra ended up excluding some who claimed to be priests, but then failed to produce the evidence that they were the descendants of Aaron. With this as the focus, I want to consider Nehemiah's inclusion of this information, which is found here in chapter 7. Look with me there, beginning at verse 61. Here Nehemiah presents us with the words of Ezra again by declaring, And these were the ones who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not identify their father's house nor their lineage, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642, and of the priests, the sons of Habai, the sons of Koz, the sons, uh, uh, the, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, uh, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy. But it was not found, therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. Now here in these verses we find Nehemiah, he's reminding the Israelites about the way in which this priest named Ezra had handled you know, the, the issue that arose when a group of men who claimed to be the descendants of Aaron failed to produce the proof of their priestly genealogy. Uh, rather than rejecting them, though, rather than just sending them packing, they, uh, they were encouraged to just wait for the high priest to come and consult with the Lord using the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, now, just for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to remember that the Urim and the Thummim, uh, these were gemstones which may have been carried uh, by the high priest uh, of Israel in a pouch or it possibly was attached uh, to his ephod. Uh, either way, these were gemstones that were used by the high priest to determine God's uh, will in specific situations. You know, there, there wasn't a chapter and verse to go to to find out if these priests you know, were actually priests or not. Uh, and so they would consult with the Urim and the Thummim in order to discover if these men were truly from the lineage of Aaron. Uh, in similar fashion, it's my guess that Nehemiah then handled this issue in the same exact way. He recounts the way that Ezra handled this you know, you know, earlier, uh, and, and then uh, in recounting this event, he's basically letting the people know that he's going to handle it the same way if there are people uh, claiming to be priests without proof of their lineage. Remember that, that the descendants of Aaron were the only Israelites appointed to the position of priest, and you had to have evidence, you had to have proof of your genealogical connection to Aaron. Therefore, when it came to any men who had no proof of their genealogy, well, it was necessary for Nehemiah to wait for the approval of the Lord before placing them into this position. Otherwise, they would be disqualified from that position and would need to serve uh, somewhere else. Now, as we consider all the ways that Nehemiah was helping the Israelites to discover their calling, I can't help but to remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4. 
There he describes the way in which the Lord has called the pastor, teacher of every church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's right, the, the, the pastor-teacher, that's one position. Uh, this, this is the senior pastor position in the church. The, the sub-shepherd, if you will, has been appointed to equip the saints for the work of ministry, uh, to create the rank and file of a church so that it, it functions in an orderly fashion, so that uh, every calling is, is accomplished, so that every member is doing its part in the body of Christ. And with that being the case, you still might be wondering about your calling. You might be wondering what your calling in Christ is. And if so, I encourage you to seek the counsel of the leaders who have been raised up here at this church. Spend some time talking with the lead deacons in the church, or I'd be happy to meet with you myself to find out what your spiritual gifts are and what your calling might be so that you can begin to accomplish your appointment here in your fellowship of faith. It's also important for us to realize that the Lord is not only calling us to serve him according to our calling, but, but he's also calling us to become believers who are financially invested in our Christian community. In order to make my case, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 7. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 66. Here, Nehemiah declares, altogether the whole assembly was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 men and women singers. Their horses were 736, their mules, 245, their camels, 435, and donkeys, 6,720. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the father's houses gave to their treasury of the work uh, 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. And that which uh, the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we learn about the way in which the people of God began to give of their gold uh, to fill the temple treasury. And in other words, uh, we can just sum it up in this way. They were using their own wealth for the work that was being accomplished there in Jerusalem. They were using their own work to support, or they were using their own wealth to support the work that the Lord was accomplishing uh, there in Jerusalem. And, and as we consider the way in which the people of God gave their wealth for the work of the Lord, it's important for us to remember that we too have been called to support the work of the ministry as we use our finances to uh, to help with the work of the Lord. I, I like the way that Paul put it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, there he encouraged the Christians in Corinth to take up a collection on the first day of the week, which was according to their income. That, that's what Paul instructs the Christians in Corinth to do. And, and while it's true that we're no longer living under the Old Testament tithe, you know, he didn't encourage them to follow the law of the tithe. No, instead, Paul simply encouraged us to become believers who give bountifully and who give cheerfully. We actually find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 
There he declares, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Christian, listen, the Lord is calling those who trust in him to give bountifully and to give cheerfully so that we can support the work of the ministry here at our church. And I realize that the bond market is in a historical freefall. I realize that the inflation rate is at a 40-year high and home mortgage rates are now over 7%. I realize that anyone that is halfway sane recognizes that we are, in fact, in a recession. But this still doesn't change the fact that the Lord has called us to support the work of the ministry with bountiful gifts that are cheerfully given. Nowhere do you see him say, give bountifully and cheerfully if the economy is doing okay. You don't see that. The Lord tells us to give what he's placed on our hearts to give and to give it bountifully and to give it cheerfully. And it's as simple as that. And listen, this is true regardless of you know, whether we're the wealthiest people in the church or the poorest people in the church, whether we're gatekeepers or singers or Levites or Nethanim, we've been called to become believers who are financially invested in the work of God here at our church. The Lord has uh, called us to engage in the work of the ministry and to support that work with financial offerings. And as we commit our financial offerings to the work of the ministry, well, we can rejoice in knowing that God is able to make all grace abound toward us so that we can have uh, an abundance of everything we need for every good work. That's the promise that he made. That's the promise that he made that God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Paul says, you give bountifully, you give cheerfully, and he'll make sure that all grace will abound toward you so that you always have all sufficiency in all things all the time. It's pretty simple. It's a pretty simple statement, and I encourage you to put God to the test. Find out if it's true. With all this in mind, I just want to wrap up our study tonight by encouraging every Christian to remember that we've all been called to be an active member of our Christian community. We've all been called to be functioning members of this body. This includes our calling in Christ. This uh, includes our appointment to serve. This includes our financial commitment to this fellowship of faith. With all this being the case, it's my prayer that we would all discover and accomplish our calling in Christ as we begin to function as the member of the body that the Lord would have us to become for our benefit and for his glory. Let's pray.